Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Thursday, November 4th, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And joining us today, our old friend, Chris Steyerwald, Fox News analyst, uh, supreme for many years now a scholar at AEI, uh, the American Enterprise Institute, a columnist for the Dispatch, and co-host of the Friday podcast, Ink Stained Wretches, with our other friend Eliana Johnson from the Free Beacon. Chris, how are you today? Uh, I feel like uh, I'm starting to get slightly rested. I thought that with the Virginia results that I would not, I was, I, I was sort of I'm not going to care about watching this. This is my first time not decision desking an important election in more than a decade. And I'm really going to live it up. But man, I am a junkie as the it got to be like 645. And I was like getting the little cold sweats. And I had I had I gave in and I set up a fake in a very pitiful fashion, set up a fake war room in my office to watch the returns come in. And I'm ashamed. I'm I'm proud of you. I am proud of you for for refusing to give in to the notion that your uh, past habits were somehow sinful. Uh, in fact, they are indicative of somebody who takes the sorts of things that you've done for a living uh, so seriously, and that the habits of behavior and mind that you followed were very valuable and worthwhile. So let's let's try to deploy those in, in this fashion. Uh, everybody uh, who listens to this podcast probably heard us yesterday give our take on what happened on Tuesday night. Um, do you have a like nugget graph? Yeah, I, I don't want to take anything away from the excellence of the campaign that Glenn Youngkin ran or him as a candidate. He's a natural. I think he ought to seriously think about running for president in 2024. I think you ought to, I think you ought to chew on that. He ought to not make the mistake Chris Christie did when he caught lightning in a bottle uh, in 2009. Uh, so I think he did a very good job. I think Terry McAuliffe did a very terrible job. Uh, that was a political malpractice level campaign. There was no pivot. He couldn't figure out what to do. He couldn't explain why he was running. Uh, they got caught and couldn't move. But I, to take nothing away from those factors, the size of the swing over the course of four years in New Jersey and Virginia was almost identical. And not to disparage Jack Chitterelli, but I don't think that race was a referendum on Jack Chitterelli. Um, and when you look in Pennsylvania, they had a Supreme Court election. There was a vacancy on the Supreme Court. Republicans performed very well there. So I think it is in the water. Uh, I think that the, I think we are seeing something uh, not dissimilar to 2009 and 2010, and also, by the way, uh, 2017 and 2018. Okay, so, um, and if you go further afield from Pennsylvania, you have the uh, Long Island races in New yep. York, you have a Republican winning as the police chief in Seattle, yep. which on the one hand is incredibly surprising because no one, no Republican has won there maybe in three decades, maybe four decades. And on the other hand, of course, not surprising in the least because Seattle descended into the ninth circle of hell over the last two years and a representative Republic 
<clears throat> with an electorate that is able to respond to events, responded to events in the only way that they could, which was to say, whoever's running this, we better get rid of before our city, you know, self-interest burn, kicks burns in. like Lisbon during, you know, in it is destroyed like Lisbon in, in the 17th century. Um, so you have a sort of uniform swing in some ways. Uh, and that's very uh, striking because we usually wait. We now know that the 2009 gubernatorial races were a harbinger of the 2010 shellacking. But we didn't know that in 2009. Well, I mean, I see, I see, I see, I see Noah shaking it off. Uh, we knew, uh, you know, that the outcome of the Virginia uh, and uh, Virginia gubernatorial election, this is now uh, 10 out of the last 12 cycles has been predictive of midterm outcomes and high, high correlation because put it this way. You're looking at now. This was a, a much larger electorate than in some previous cycles, but these are measures of intensity more than more than anything else. These are measures of which party has voters who are willing to get off uh, of their of their tukases, their tukai, and go down to go vote uh, in when it's when it's not a presidential year. It's not whatever. So the, this this is a measurement of engagement and, and activization, uh, and the. The, these are always auguries. These are always big auguries. Yeah, I would like to add that I, I was I was at Campaigns and Elections magazine at the time, and everybody I spoke with said, yeah, this is a giant meteor is screaming towards Earth. We see it. It's there. We all were watching it, and there's nothing we can do about it, with the exception of one thing, which is to pass Wait, our in agenda. November? Wait, in November 2009? Yes. Yeah, immediately after. The first week of November 2009, people said a meteor is screaming our way. Because the consultant I, class that I was talking to, yes. And they're and doing the exact same it. things, precisely okay. the same things. The, the rhetoric not, is the same. Okay, okay, but but the point is that we had had one midterm election, one midterm election before it <clears throat> that had the kind of. I mean, actually, we had two because if you count 1947, all of that, you know, we had a couple of midterm elections that had these wild swings. But um, the Gingrich '94 election was a unique event in my political lifetime in the in the dramatic the the sheer size and scope right it was 52 seats nobody expected 63 seats in 2010 and there was the whole point is the reason I'm, i'm bringing this up to say that 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 something is very big in 2009 you may have heard all these people saying was screaming and chris you may have said that the meteor was screaming toward them but i don't think that the conventional opinion was it was, yeah, there's dis- discontent and we're still dealing with the financial meltdown and, you know, the money hasn't started to flow yet from the stimulus and we haven't, healthcare hasn't passed yet. And so we're all going to be saved. And 2010, there's going to be a recovery. There's going to be a huge economic recovery. Recovery summer is coming and the bacon will be pulled by the fire. I think now because of 2009 and 20, uh, you know, because of this election in 2021, I don't think there is a person alive who pays attention to politics who doesn't think that the, the Democrats are in catastrophic shape going into 2022 well, to listen, the extent that it could breed that it could breed complacency among Republicans. Um, and it could also breed 
the one desperate thing that could happen to Democrats, which is a desperate effort to strike on a strategy to avoid the asteroid that might actually work. Uh, the, I doubt it, but yeah, go ahead. The parallels to 2009 and 2010 are <clears throat> pretty striking and significant. And there are some Democrats saying as much because they're doing the exact same things. I wrote a piece on MSNBC for this uh, on this topic in 2009, the post New Jersey, Virginia election results. Uh, the strategy was to call Republicans obstructionist. They're not advancing our agenda. Their strategy was to say they don't have an agenda of their own. The strategy was to say they were extremist. Um, to the extent that they had any political predilections, they were well outside the, the scope of what Americans would accept. And also the only way out of this for us is to pass this agenda that has radicalized the electorate against us in the first place. That is it. everything you're hearing in 2009, you are hearing today from this, the very same people who think they can talk themselves out of this trap that they've, this corner they painted themselves into. Um, in, 2000, in 2009, 2010, the consultant class was talking a lot about 1994 and saying 1994 was very avoidable. And it's avoidable now if we do this strategy that they're implementing today as we and speak. The, and the Republicans did exactly the same thing in uh, 2017. So the 2017 results in Virginia and New Jersey should have been, the Republicans should have taken from that, like, eh, this is, does not look good. Uh, they should have taken some cues, but they don't take cues. They never take cues. The reason they don't take cues is they engage in motivated reasoning. If what you want to do is pass a $6 trillion social safety net uh, uh, deficit spending package, then everything is going to look like that. That's what everything's going to say. But uh, Noah's 100,000 percent right. Obamacare in 2009. So people were still concerned about the recession. People were still concerned about we were still at seven, eight, nine percent unemployment. People were very, very anxious. And Democrats said, no, we have to do health care now. We've just got to, we, we're not going to do immigration. We're not going to do gun control. We're not going to do anything else. We're going to do this. Even after Scott Brown won the seat in Massachusetts, they did it anyway. So there's nothing, John, you can ever tell them. You can't right. tell them anything because everything to them will sound like, and this is why we must immediately uh, take the log flume. Abe? Well, I think, you know, in terms of the Democratic response, I think there's one difference now that uh, I think makes what they're up to this time around uh, less effective because they're, they're leaning on a crutch that's not working that they didn't have then, which is Donald Trump, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that is yet another thing that I don't see them dispensing with anytime soon. Well, Donald Trump is the one who gets to choose. The, the, the interesting thing about Virginia is uh, the absence of Trump, the dog that did not bark, uh, helps us understand a big part of how Glenn Youngkin went, won. The, but it also speaks to the power of Trump. If Trump would have wanted to, he could have lost that race for Glenn Youngkin, and he could have done it in four or five days. He could have come to Virginia. He could have done in Virginia what he did in the Georgia runoffs, and he could have absolutely cost them that seat. And what sets Donald Trump apart from a lot of politicians is he is absolutely willing to harm himself, other people, everyone. He is a political suicide bomber, and that is what Republicans are afraid of. Well, he did kind of try, didn't he? I'm sorry, I'm briefly. Didn't he, he put out the statement where he said, essentially, I control your voters. They come and they go on my whim. You defy me at your will. And that kind of landed like a lead balloon. 
he left a little bronzer streaks uh, on Virginia's election a little bit. There were there, there were a few uh, there were a few uh, Clinique toner uh, wipes uh, left around, but in the end, he made the choice to sulk, uh, and he gave one interview where he was a little sour about Youngkin. Uh, and certainly, if Youngkin would have lost, what would he have said? Because he did not fully embrace me, this is why he was defeated, right? But I, I think in the whole. Uh, he recognized the degree to which he was a liability. Can I can I add to that? I actually I'm curious, Chris, what you think about that. There's one huge chunk of the electorate that clearly decided the the uh, victory for Yunkin, and elsewhere we see evidence, and that's independents, people who voted for Biden and then swung to the Republican, and those are the people who actually don't like Trump. I assume these are the right. these are the people that were turned off by Trump, and it's it's intriguing to me that the Democratic political class are are very carefully trying to avoid. Uh, confronting the reality of those voters, right? Because they don't really want to call them racist because they need them to win next time. But they are also really annoyed that they voted for a Republican who they feel is, you know, white supremacy in a fleece vest. So how do you, how is, are both the Republicans going to keep those voters next, next time around? And how are the Democrats going to deal with them if they don't even know how to talk to them or about them? So think of Terry McAuliffe, a Clinton Democrat, uh, and sort of enthusiastic sleaze politician, right? Like Terry, Terry McAuliffe's brand is, I'm the bag man, and I'm a pragmatic Clintonite. That's, that's my thing. Um, and he, know, he knew what to do. Terry McAuliffe, would, if he were advising a candidate, he would have said, well, here's what you have to go do. You got to talk out of, and Youngkin did this to a certain degree, talk out of both sides of your mouth. You got one message that works over here. We're going to talk about critical race theory a little bit, but we're going to focus on the schools because people are going to cast onto that issue, whatever is in their heart. And whether you are a Biden voting parent in Fairfax County who could not believe the incredible maltreatment of children that was mandated by the teachers unions, uh, that was the, the, the huge pain economically and emotionally and developmentally on the children of Virginia by this stuff. It was really shocking. So he was able to speak to both of them. He found a way to speak to both of those audiences at the same time. McAuliffe would have known what to do, except for the fact, and I blame the California recall quite a lot on this. California recall was never going to happen. That was never going to take place. Once California voters were like, I don't want Gavin Newsom to be governor, but you're saying if I vote to recall, Larry Elder will become governor? No, absolutely not. We're not going to do that. And but the lesson and I did hits on multiple networks and talked to multiple people who were like the Trump factor really worked in California. I was like, no, California worked in California. What are you talking about? And the timing of how that worked out, Democrats brought into Virginia an absolute belief that talking about Donald Trump was the way to frighten these voters away. But two things happened. Number one, Trump did stay away. That was very important. Uh, but number two, McAuliffe found himself trapped between the two constituencies. When, when Randy Weingarten is part of your closing argument, what you are admitting is that you have lost the debate, right? You've, you've, you've been defeated in the central area of the debate, and now all you can do is turn up the base. If I were a Democratic consultant, I would be saying, we have a problem in all of these suburbs with the teachers unions and the teachers. The schools have become a massive liability and our relationship with the AFT and the NEA has led us into a really dire strait where we're no longer able to talk to voters about the things that matter to them. As I wrote yesterday, this was still a pandemic election. 
This was an election about the pandemic in New Jersey. It was about masks, <clears throat> but in Virginia, it was about schools. I mean, I, this is a point that I, I made yesterday also uh, that um, I, I believe is getting astonishingly little attention. This is still the dominating event of our, of our I mean, maybe not of our lifetimes, but certainly Close. of our recent lifetimes. And it touches every single issue. Every issue is informed by it. So if you ask people whether COVID is their number one issue in Virginia, they, they didn't say it was. I think that it came in third or fourth. But if you say that the economy and education are one and two, the economy is a COVID economy. And education is about the treatment of students and parents in the way in the both in during and in the immediate wake of the aftermath of the worst of the pandemic. And we are nowhere near done with this yet. I mean, we have this story this morning, right, that uh, OSHA is going to regulate all private businesses over 100 employees to get vaccinated or have weekly testing. But it's going to wait a couple of months because it's going to screw up the supply chain before Christmas or screw up people's Christmas. So it's an emergency regulation that takes place in two months, having been directed and announced its creation two months ago. So it's four months from Biden saying we have an emergency. We're going to impose these mandates on private businesses. And four months later, the mandate is imposed. Now, I don't I suspect there will net this will never happen. Either the courts are going to intervene and say that it was a that it's a it's unconstitutional and that it doesn't follow the the law on how to declare an emergency, or Biden himself will try to declare victory and get out. Yeah, there'll be a decline in cases, and he'll say we don't really need this anymore. I still encourage businesses to do it and all of that. Once the full damage is known, but all they are doing here is is connecting themselves to the regulatory impositions caused by COVID, and they are directly associating themselves with them. And some people like the comfort of thinking that the government is involved, but I'm pretty sure that most people are uneasy. This was a and, this yeah. was a thesis that I wrote for the magazine uh, website yesterday that Democrats yeah. have tethered themselves to a series of positions that are nothing less than neurotic. Americans don't like the status quo that has been imposed on them by COVID. They want a way out. But core Democrats who shape their narrative don't. They don't want a way out. They kind of like this. Americans don't like racial conflict. They like to diffuse it. They want to avoid it. They want a way out. Democrats won't give them a way out. In fact, your discomfort is indicative of how this is actually working on you. And it's good for society as a whole. They want to to, to, uh, an off ramp, an escape hatch from all of this discomfort and Democrats don't. By the way, uh, go ahead. Do you know, do you know how neurotic it's, it's going to look if, if the, if this sort of winter's bump, if it happens, it resembles at all the way uh, COVID, the COVID cases. Bump. You mean the rise in COVID yeah, cases? Yeah. yeah the, the, the COVID. Uh, because COVID of the, number. because of the cold weather. Right. Yeah. If it looks anything like it did last year, um, that bump starts falling after the holidays, which would which would then be when the emergency measures uh, are, are, are supposed to take place, you know, once once we get over the worst of it. He needs they need they need. Republicans, in some ways, what Republicans need is for this to go on politically. It gives them a foil. It gives them a foil to say we're for your freedom 
we're we're for you escaping the heavy hand of the central government that you tell us that only 42% of you say you like the current president and his and his governmental approach um there would be nothing better for republicans than for this to continue politically because it, every single day it's Biden Democrats equal COVID. Biden Democrats equal COVID. And the whole thing that happened in 2020, which is Trump equals COVID that helped kill Trump, has been completely supplanted. But the, Even but, though Democrats have this idea in their head that Trump remains, you know, remains a towering evil and rallying cry, they need to get out of this. Democrats need to be able to say, we got you out of this, we're out of this, and now we're going to do all sorts of good and wonderful things for you. But to Noah's point, there is a strain and it's, I think, broader than just COVID because it, it applies to the attitudes about race and critical race theory in those debates. There's a strain in the elite, democratic, uh, well-educated, urban dwelling uh, population that is all about doing the work. You've got to do the work on race. You're supposed to be uncomfortable. You've got to do the work on COVID. You're supposed to feel uncomfortable in mass and, and because it's just so much worse for everybody else. So you have to suffer now the way that previous generations have suffered in all these other ways. And there is something, so they love, that. there's a kind of martyrology there that they have fully embraced and they're running a lot of these institutions. So they, they don't want to get out, even if their political officials are starting to see the light about needing to. Well, Abe, and, and, Abe sorry. Go ahead, go ahead. No, I was going to say, Abe uh, has just reviewed for the next issue of commentary, uh, John McWhorter's book, Wolf Wolf I, was gonna, I was just about to mention that. Oh, really? Oh, wow. That, see, great minds think alike. And Abe, you, you, you evoke this essentially Presbyterian I mean that woke puritanical, please. We need to start. Oh no 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 no! Hold on. Okay, well that puritanical, puritanical is for Noah's is for Noah's book coming out in the spring. But I mean, essentially, it's a Presbyterian worldview. McWhorter says it is a a religion. There's a Presbyterian on this call. The term that that McWhorter uses is elect. So let's leave let's leave us Presbyterians out of this. All right. Okay, I I I apologize. (laughs) Anyway, so but Abe, can you? I mean, so in essence, the idea that. Uh, it, you know, there's the Buddhist idea that suffering brings, you know, it brings you uh, knowledge. But in this case, it is more that, uh, you know, the acknowledgement of sin, living in, you know, accepting. That's 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 that's, that's, yeah. that's the main goal is to um, highlight, to, to, to point out the sin that, by the way, you can never expunge of. Well, I mean, we we're talking about COVID, but it's 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 related in terms of this sort of self-flagellation. Uh, the sin that you can never expunge of white racism, to hold it out there, of of uh, white supremacy, to hold it out there, say, look at this, this we live with this every day. This 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 governs everything we do. And by the way, McWhorter talks about uh, the this the doing the work uh, a bit. That 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 is that is a that is a huge part of the actual sort of religious pra- That is that is the practice. And can I can I just say in response, uh, Chris has uh, written extensively about populism, which is essentially a counterforce to this o- across all generations and in American history, which is it is one thing for outside for businesses, for this, for religious figures and all of that to uh, preach, you know, you must atone for your sins and your evils and do the work right it is another for it to come from government and populism in some ways has always been a pleat, sort of a bleat 
of frustration with the idea somehow that uh, for, forces larger than yourself are coming and weighing in on you and weighing down on you and trying to ruin your life. And that is where the populists, where the, we're cross, cross political divisions here, but maybe not cross class divisions because the upper middle class and the upper classes have kind of uh, embraced this religion to some extent. But in populist terms, again, they're just handing anti non-currently in charge people a baseball bat to beat the people in charge over the heads with every single minute of every day. I just want to add, there's there's another parallel between the religion that McWhorter identifies of, 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 of electism and its approach to uh, uh, white supremacy and COVID, which is that he points out that the, nothing in all the activism and all the talk and everything about the country's racism is actually geared toward stopping it, toward, toward any actual resolution. It's about keeping it alive because, because that keeps the faith alive. This is very much about COVID, right? This is, this is, it's a very similar dynamic in terms of the, of the suffering. It's never supposed to stop. So, so Chris, if, if I'm right about this in populist terms and we're going into 2022, um, how, how, how will this manifest itself? Because this now, of course, then can also divide populism from Trump because it isn't just Trump. It isn't just, it isn't just vaguely they're coming to get you. It is this specific group of people have these specific policies. In Virginia, it's education, but it could flare up again to be directly about COVID and COVID restrictions and all of that. How does that, how will that, how will we see that manifest itself in political terms if it is a successful message? What is David Brooks's term for the Bobo populists that support Trump? I forget that he, he had a, he had a, uh, a neologism about <clears throat> these, uh, you know, the, the, the populist Bobos. Uh-huh. Um, how does a guy who is in a $200,000 boat and lives in Naples, Florida, and uh, was a, is a retired executive, how does he feel like a populist, right? What is populistic about him? How did, because populism requires a sense of victimhood, and it requires a belief that, that sinister forces beyond you from a group that you're not part of are colluding against you, right? How does, uh, how, when we talk about replacement theory and all this stuff, and you look at people who are wealthy, you look at people who are well-established and they're freaking out and you're like, what makes you so populistic? Because they don't know, they, they don't have self-reference. In the same way, people who are part of McWhorter's elect, or Noah, what is the term we should be using? In anticipation Pur of well, your puritanical, superior but, book. But puritanical, but the Puritans referred to themselves as the elect and non-elect in the Congregationalist right. Church. You were elect once you ascended to the church, which is the perfect analogy I use. And I don't call it a religion. It is aesthetically religious. And that I is just, indeed the point. I'm just trying to push pre-sales here. I just want to push pre-orders is all I'm talking <laughs> Thank about. Thank you very much. I'll, I'll, the, uh, I'll leverage the, that later on, but please so, continue. So how do these people who are supported by corporations, who are supported by, as you say, the government itself, uh, that have climbed to the highest ranks of power, that control uh, large swaths of the academy. 
How do they feel activated and populistic and PO'd all the time? What is it that makes that possible? They say it's racism. Everything is, there are shadowy forces beyond our control. So I would say they're all populists, right? The uh-huh. wokester, the wokesters and uh, the mega millionaires uh, who are, who are in, their, in their boats with the Trump flags are all populists because populism is a methodology, not an ideology. I believe Democrats, and, and we talked about this at the beginning, in 2008, Democrats believed that a portal had opened that was going to transport America in the Stargate had opened and America was going to move into the glorious progressive future. The uh, financial panic of 2008 had manifested itself in the election of the most liberal African-American Barack Obama. Change was now and we had to act urgently to create this change. 2020, they thought the same thing was true. COVID had opened up the portal again and that COVID was going to be the means by which we would address all of these problems. While we're at it, let's fix policing. While we're at it, let's address, uh, let's, let's have some retributive racial justice. While we're at it, let's do it all while we're here. Let's just go for it because they're addicted to the new deal. They're addicted to thinking about things in those terms. The depression has shaped the attitudes of the Democratic Party for now almost a century and usually to their detriment. The problem is that that's not how Americans feel. And you correctly, you guys uh, know, you and John both correctly identified, what do Americans want? They want it to be over. They want whatever the next normal, nice life. People want the good life. And the voters who we're talking about in places like Loudoun County, Virginia, why do they live in Loudoun County, Virginia? They live in Loudoun County because they want the good life. They want low crime. They want good schools. They want their little yard. They want to take their kids trick-or-treating. That's why they live in Loudoun County. That's why they commute. Um, and the, the, the reality for Democrats is it is too late already because they already tried to go through the Stargate. <laughs> they already tried to get in and they're going to get, they're going to get chopped in half as they try to go through. Okay. So look, in 2008, after 2008, you can say that Obama had a credible case for transformational change. He won by nine points. There were 60. He had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, and I'm looking at the numbers here. He had 200. Democrats had 257 seats in the House. Biden comes into office. He wins by four points. Uh, he lucks into a 50-50 Senate because of the psychotic behavior of the sitting president and the two runoffs in Georgia and loses, his party loses 15 seats in the House mm-hmm. so that he has a majority of less than 10. And somehow, and Abe and I have a whole disagreement here on the podcast as to whether or not this means that Biden is a fool or whether he's an idiot. He was gulled <laughs> into line. believing gulled into believing by you know having john meacham and doris kearns goodwin and other notable historians of news magazine genius uh in to explain (laughs) to him how if you've read three books in your life you might think that you were fdr or lbj and of course as i as i say constantly lbj came into office he won by 22 points He had 69 Democratic senators and a margin in the House of 155 seats. 
and they passed 70 pieces of legislation in 1965 that constituted the Great Society. And you know why they did it? Because there was a mandate from the American people that they could do whatever the hell they wanted. And you'll notice, by the way, that Johnson did not end up being president in 1969, despite all that, right? So there's Biden, five, six, seven seat majority in the House, no majority in the Senate, a victory by four and a half points against the most, the craziest, weirdest president who ever lived. And he believes that he has a mandate for the bills that are about to, this one bill that is about to collapse in the House today, which I want to get to, like, I mean, there's there's nothing in the Virginia results at all that wasn't evident in the two in the 2020 results. There's nothing evident in the Virginia results that you couldn't have seen in the 2020 results. In all of the things that you described, Republicans gained one state legislative chamber in 2020. They didn't lose any. They gained one governorship in 2020. They didn't lose any. Uh, They gained seats in the House. And as you say, if it were not for DJT, they would have retained control of the Senate. And the 2020 top of the, that Joe, the fact that Joe Biden had reverse coattails in 2020 should have been, and was to some smart Democrats, the message of guys, we, uh, we have a tiger by the tail here. We gotta find a way to pick the things that people like to do first. We've got to pick the things that people like. And uh, what's his name? Uh, David Shore. David Shore talks uh, very convincingly about this. Um, the uh, Jeff Maurer and his uh, newsletter, uh, I Might Be Wrong, uh, Substack is great. He's another liberal Democrat who's saying, guys, you got to calm down. You have to do things that people like. And I will just, in, in, in closing on this, the fact that the Progressive Caucus held up what would have been an incredibly popular infrastructure bill in Virginia, money for the ports in the in Hampton Roads, money for uh, uh, commuters in Northern Virginia, money, money, money. Virginia would have been a huge beneficiary of that legislation. And that the Progressive Caucus held that up because if, they, if they'd have passed it as they should have, Joe Biden would have been in Virginia saying, my friends, when 66 is 2,500 miles, uh, 2,500 lanes wide, uh, and we'll carry you into the District of Columbia on a rickshaw, he would have been able to do all of that and people would have been pleased, but the progressive said no. And this is a, a this is a direct cause, a direct okay. result. I want to get to that. But first, let me talk to you about something that we men have to deal with, which is a comfort in our clothing, just like women do. You're a busy guy. You know what that means? You can stop thinking about what to wear and just embrace the radically efficient Mack Weldon daily wear system, a selection of clothes rooted in smart design, made with performance fabrics and built to work together from breathable t-shirts, polos, stylish button-ups, underwear and beyond. Mack Weldon makes it easy for you to dress for work, leisure, or play. Buy some time this fall with the Mack Weldon daily wear system. For 20% off your first order, visit MacWeldon.com slash commentary and enter promo code commentary. Look, for the ultimate lazy Sunday, their their ace sweatshorts and sweatpants have modern tailoring and pair perfectly with their ultra soft, ultra graded Pima tees. And for weekend travels both near and far, their silver knit polo and radius shorts and sweats are the perfect high tech 
highly packable combo. So that's MacWeldon.com slash commentary. Enter promo code commentary for 20% off Mac Weldon, radically efficient wardrobing. So Chris, uh, what, uh, you know, um, I met a guy, I used to know a guy uh, I was at the University of Chicago with when I was an undergraduate and like seven or eight years, and he was, he was working on a dissertation uh, in the divinity school. And seven or eight years later, I go back uh, to Chicago and I run into him and he had said to me just before I was leaving, this is great, you know, cause uh, I'm about, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm near, I'll be done next week. I'll be done next week and I'll, I'll be finished next week. It's really great. And then eight years later, I go back to Chicago and I run into him and I'm like, how's it going? He's like, I'll, I, I, my dissertation, it, it's going to be done next week. So Steny Hoyer, the number two person in the house last night said, we're going to pass both bills, the infrastructure bill and the big uh, build back better bill tomorrow. He said this on Monday. He said it on Tuesday. He said it last week. Now today we're getting the, they're going to pass it tomorrow. I'm getting this whiff, this waiting for Godot whiff of, uh, the bill that will never pass is going to pass, and that for some reason it seems to be stuck in Steny Hoyer's and maybe Nancy Pelosi's heads that it is a positive for them to be using this kind of, we're about to vote on this, or we're about, about to pass this. Maybe it'll happen today, maybe it won't. Every time they do it, 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 it justifies Noah's and my sense that we've been talking about for weeks that none of this may happen at all. Why are they do? And we should talk about the particulars of what's going on because they have shifted strategy, right? I would, I would, I would say first that uh, given the cast, uh, this may be more waiting for Guffman than waiting for Godot. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, but Guffman shows up. <laughs> Guffman shows up in the third act of Waiting for Guffman. Um, so uh, no, he never shows up. And oh, he doesn't Guffman. show up. That's right. The guy. It's a guy who, they mistake. It's a guy they, they think yes. is Guffman, right? They I'm mistake sorry. actually the guy who played Bentley right. in the Jeffersons. Yes, that's right. Uh, Paul Benedict. That's right. Oh, yeah. nice. I should. I should have known. I should have known. Thank you. Anyway, know. please go. Please go. Ahead. So, so um, I, 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 on the one hand, if you're Hoyer and Pelosi. You have to create, continue to create a sense of urgency around this thing. And you have to continue to, to do that because let's say I'll, I'll give it a one in five chance that uh, the uh, social welfare package uh, dies completely and then it doesn't get passed. Um, I think there's almost no chance that the bipartisan package, I think that or not no chance, but I think the chances of the bipartisan package dying in the house are very low because that's parties are not suicide pacts. And I don't think that you're going to have enough Democrats who would go along with scuttling a popular bill that they would all like to go home and run on. Everybody would like to be able to go home because what, what they most want, what do the members of Congress always want? They want to stay. They want to get reelected. That's always job one. And number two, what do they want right now? They want to not be here. They want very desperately to leave this place. Uh, and what Hoyer and Pelosi are trying to do is create a sense of urgency around both of these things as it's happening. Um, and look, I, if I were a Democrat, if I were advising the Democrats in Congress, I would say, pass them both, pass them now, and go away. Whatever is in the, the, the second one, even if it's at one point, whatever, whatever, the, whatever Kristen Cinema has woken up today and decided the correct number is, do that, 
get out and run away from this and then go home and figure out what you're going to run on. Okay. Well, that strategy involves a, a second part of it, which would be uh, to, uh, to completely reproduce in its every, every aspect of it, save the identities of the individual assist a soldier moment. Yeah. Take an example, make one stand right next to Jesse Jackson or whoever the equivalent is and denounce them, cast yep. them overboard right under the bus. You got us here. Yep. They can't do that. And they won't do that. Self-preservation instinct won't allow them to do that. Okay. I don't think that's right for this reason. I think that Pelosi, I think if I view her as a rational actor, uh, what I think happened is she realized that that the Build Back Better plan is dead. It will never pass. There is never going to be one. Therefore, they're going to load it up with whatever they want and pass it through the House so they can say that they passed the bill through the House yes. and that the Senate killed it. That's yes. fine. It's a positioning statement then. Great. That's right. cool. No, but it's a positioning no, no, it's statement a that jeopardizes no, no. members in the upper chamber. Okay. It's a, Forget it's also, the it's, she doesn't care about the members in the upper chamber. Right. Screw the members in the upper chamber. She can, however, if she does it this way and the progressives are stupid enough to go along with it. And oddly, the moderates are stupid enough to go along with it. She can get the 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 infrastructure bill, because if yeah. she can get a vote on build back better, she can get a vote on infrastructure. Infrastructure will pass. Build back better will pass. Infrastructure uh, build back better is dead. She just added back family paid leave, which is like a hundred hundreds of billions of dollars. They're going to put five or six things in there today if they vote on it that are going to raise the cost of the bill by a trillion dollars because they already have sussed out that 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 bill will never pass. This is all a this is all a smokescreen to get the bill to, to get the infrastructure bill passed finally and through. The progressives can say we voted on and we tried to get this out and these these fascists um, coal mining fascists from West Virginia stopped all, That's actually you know, the name of our football up. team, the coal mining fascists. It, it, it is. It is. I, I got, you, were, you were, I believe, the linebacker. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was yeah. good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and and so so that's that's what for the progressives. The interesting question now goes to the moderate. She only has three votes. She has three a three vote margin. If that if the Build Back Better bill that they designed today comes back and somebody costs it out at two and a half trillion dollars. Three moderates could vote against it. They know sure. the bill isn't going anywhere. What? Why sure. would they want to vote for it? Abigail Spamberger is already probably now going to lose in Virginia, but if she wants to run for re-election in that seat that she, you know, that she managed to steal in 2018, uh, she might be better off vote being able to walk around saying, "I killed this insane bill. I'm the same Democrat who was here keeping Democrats sane." So rather than just, voting for it as a good soldier. Can I just add to that, that that that's an important point, because even if they can bully all the moderates into going along with this larded up thing, just which is, as you all, I think, correctly say, would just be killed in the Senate. They're sent. They're taking back a message to all those independent voters right. saying not just saying, look, we did something, but they stopped it. That's the message that just lost in, in these last elections. What they're saying is we really don't care about all the spending. People are, are responding to economic questions on polling that they care. They actually are paying attention to these massive numbers. They're worried about them. And this is the wrong message that worked before. It's not 
possibly going to work now with voters. And as we've said many times now, independents in particular are drawing a straight line between profligacy in Washington and their worsening personal economic conditions. It's not going to get any better. This is all bubble talk. If they think that they can legislate their way out of this again, what we said in the beginning of the podcast, they just want a roadmap out of where we are now. And that's not what they're getting. So the 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 hostage taking of the uh, progressive caucus uh, is very is very much uh, reminds me of the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus uh, back in back in the days when they ate John Boehner alive. What Pelosi has been willing to do uh, that Boehner would not do is take painful votes, force painful votes for moderates. Uh, it was part of how they lost so many seats uh, in 2010 because of the dumb cap and trade vote that was never going to advance in the Senate, but she insisted on it anyway and forced moderate. She, I don't know how many of the seats, the, the 63 seats Democrats lost in 2010 was because of cap and trade, but if it was one seat, it was one too many because it was never going to pass in the Senate. But in order to placate her most radical members, she just forces the votes. By the way, if Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker, that is exactly the kind of speaker he will be. Woe betide the Republican moderates under uh, Speaker Kevin McCarthy because he will have no problem making them walk the plank. What I here's what I expect. If if I was going to say what's the what's the the it's not a high probability, but the highest probability scenario, just as you described, John, they go. Here we go. Here's our dumb package that is uh, insensate to the messages from the Senate. We're going to pass it as a messaging bill anyway, and we're going to do it. Now we can release the popular bill and let that pass. By doing it that way, it will be December. It will be into December before whatever the final resolution is on the uh, social welfare package. And in that case, that starts to butt up against the new fiscal cliffs. And now we are We've got a government funding issue and we've got these other things. And now they're all in one big wad. And uh, here's my, my, my uh, much like Clubber Lang, uh, my, my prediction is pain. Uh, and it will be pain dragged into almost into the new year, uh, the new election year, where we'll have Democrats fighting with each other about these same issues still and doing it against the backdrop of, of uh, fiscal panic and concern about those things. Uh, okay, you two, forgot two, the most two. important congressional priority, which is Christmas break. Yes, of um, course. <laughs> but briefly, two. though, can I, can I ask briefly um, what legislative legis- uh, House leadership has now previewed today uh, a vote maybe on BBB tonight and a BFF, BIF tomorrow. Uh, as of last night, it was, you know, maybe tomorrow. Steny said, Steny Hoyer said maybe tomorrow. But then today he also said maybe this weekend. Uh, last week, we had, you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi sort of flexing her muscles for progressives and saying, listen, we're going to put this infrastructure vote on the floor. You're, it's going to be open forever. You're going to vote on it. Or you're going to kill it. And that's your choice. And you're going to suffer the consequences. That never happened. Does leadership have any capacity now to force pro- progressives in the, the progressive caucus to actually support their initiatives? It seems like leadership is just bluffing, bluffing, bluffing and being called constantly. But let me add to that. I want to go back to the moderates. Granted, there aren't many moderates, but there are more than enough moderates to kill the bill. Like, if you're uh, granted, so so they're going to stuff something in that Josh Gottheimer, who who is who is one of the people who has to look at his future in northern New Jersey and say, "Yee, 
And the New Jersey, uh, gee, and the New and, gee, and, there was some turnout there that doesn't look very promising for me. And the New Jersey they, results are worse news for Democrats than the Virginia results are fundamentally. Way, way worse. First of all, technically speaking, the the swing in 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 uh, New Jersey was fifteen points. I mean, it was only twelve in Virginia. New Jersey was fifteen points with a lit with a candidate who literally spent almost no money. I mean, it was a total rejection. Anyway, if you're Josh Gottheimer. So they're they're going to stick something in on the on on restoring money uh, for the um, for the tax deductibility of uh, very popular in, in in poor states. Very popular in poor states right. to but say the good the good news is right. we're going to help out millionaires and billionaires. If you're Josh Gottheimer, you you uh, certainly if you're Abigail Spamberger, and they only need five more. I don't even know who they are. There's this guy Schrader uh, in uh, in in Oregon or Washington. I don't know, like. They would be better served being the killers of the bill that will never pass than they would voting to be voting on to be a get along to go along person unless there is a credible threat of a of a left wing primary challenger. So I, I don't know what the cross purpose is here. Everybody's focusing on the the progressives. But when you have a three seat margin, every individual got they're They're all mansion and cinema. In well, the House. And and the Mansion and Cinema, by the way, I should point out, and I think this is true in the House too, hiding behind Mansion and Cinema's skirts are a bunch of other Democratic senators. Uh Catherine Cortez Masto, uh Maggie Hassan. Maggie Hassan, uh, uh what's his name in Arizona? Mark, Mark, Kelly. Mark, Kelly. Mark Kelly. There are a bunch of other Democrats who are very happy not to be having the progressive change co coalition running ads against them uh, in their home states, but also very happy that Manchin, who is the only Democrat who can possibly get elected statewide in West Virginia, standing there and saying, thanks, but no thanks. I'm sure that there's a factor of that in the House. But I would just say, this is an illustration of why I believe uh, the Problem Solvers Caucus uh, and these people who are focusing on an appeal to uh, policy centrism should change their focus to procedural centrism. And I think this should be the case in the Senate too. The issues here are about restoring regular order and getting things back to working in a normal way. And no matter what, in the end, if you play the game where everybody goes and hides the ball and we wait until the end and then we bring out the piece of legislation at the end, the temptation for guys like Gottheimer is I want to be in the room where it happens and be part of making the bill. Really, they should be using their leverage to create change that allows legislation to be created in a way that is more rational and more reflective of the interests of the members who include a lot more moderates. Okay, I want to come to Abe uh, right after I talk uh, to you about ExpressVPN. Um, every time you connect to an unencrypted network in cafes, hotels, airports, et cetera, your online data is not secured. It's like leaving your kids with the nearest stranger while using the restroom. Any hacker on the same network can gain access to and steal your personal data, your passwords, your financial details, and it doesn't take much technical knowledge to do it. A smart 12-year-old can do it, and your data is valuable. Hackers can make up to 1000 bucks a person selling personal info on the dark web. So ExpressVPN creates an encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. Hackers can't steal your sensitive data. And, you know, it's so secure. A hacker with a supercomputer, it would take a billion years, literally a billion years, to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. 
and it's so easy to use. You fire up your app, click one button, you're protected, and it works on your phone, your laptop, your tablet, and more. You can stay secure on the go. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash commentary. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S, vpn.com slash commentary, and you can get an extra three months free, expressvpn.com slash commentary. Abe, you sent us a, a text a little earlier uh, that said, and I think this is really uh, well well put, if I can find it. Uh, you said Biden's issues are all crashing into one another. Or Biden's problems is cri- the all, crises. The crises are crashing into one another. Um, so if you think about what went on with the decision to announce the delay, but still the implementation of the vaccine mandate, uh, add to that the congressional stuff. Um, you know, it's easy to gloat or say, you know, we told you so and all of that. But um, go ahead. Gloat. Well, yeah, well, I mean, what made me think was is, is the supply chain crisis crashing into the vaccine mandate. Uh, right. You know, his 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 is, you know, sort of I don't know, his Hail Mary to look uh, as if he's doing something extra effective on covid here. Um what without making the supply chain crisis work worse, but but now of course he's got an additional problem because, uh, as I think we've already said on the podcast, the, the 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 emergency mandate cannot be an emergency if it's delayed two to four months. I mean, there's jurisprudence around that. I was just researching this this morning. The Fifth Circuit had uh, overturned an ETS. The E in that ETS stands for emergency. Um, because what is an ETS, an emergency temporary standard that OSHA issues in order to protect workers from substances that might be harmful conditions that might be harmful, what have you, before the research can be done into whether those substances actually are harmful. It's a, it's a temporary standard to protect workers. And if the uh, if the emergency standard um, does not in, does not sufficiently demonstrate emergency or OSHA is used as a stopgap measure that would otherwise be um, dealt with by uh, private institutions, private businesses, it is not it is not applicable. It's a regulation that cannot be implemented. So the Biden administration might be killing it, just handing it to the courts to kill it. But which, it, I, w- yeah. which would be very much in keeping uh, with the constitutional vandalism that is popular in both part in, in the presidencies of both parties. I'll just do it. And then the courts will stop me, and I can say that I've tried everything I can. He's made I that think, explicit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. well, he did it already. Say, Listen, I can't do this. Yeah, he did yeah. that already. Yeah. will stop CDC. me. Yeah. 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 But by the way, that goes to the House too. Let, let's just um, right now. Uh, uh, one of the things that may get stuck into the may, may get shoved into the um, Build Back Better bill that will that may pass and then be dead. Uh, in the House when it goes to the Senate is uh, our, 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 our regulations and things involving immigration in order to satisfy the demands of three members of a Latinx con- you know, conference or something, Chewy Garcia to other people, um, that the Senate parliamentarian has already said cannot be in a bill uh, because they don't have, it has no budgetary, there are no budgetary specific consequences or issues involved in passing this legislation, which is what allows this legislation in the Senate to avoid being subject to filibustering as a reconciliation bill. Insisting that you get a thing passed, uh, vote uh, and you vote into law that you know cannot 
pass because it violates whatever. In other words, the lawlessness or the antinomianism is is everywhere. It is everywhere. It's not just the, you know, incepting the dreamers, announcing we can't wait and sort of saying I'm legalizing the dreamers like a president has that power or other stuff that 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 Trump did, uh, you know, relating to immigration law or whatever. And then this and it's like that's why your procedural centrism idea is so important, because it's not that we're a banana republic. We're not a banana republic. But if but if the way if politicians don't take seriously their promise to a uphold the constitution to uphold the constitution and b uh don't you know sort of like agree to rules robert's rules of war whatever don't agree right. to a common and understandable set of rules we may not be in a banana republic we just may be in some kind of a dystopian horror show in which in which there are no there is no pathway forward for anything that is that you can follow and is systematic and makes sense so you can plan. If you keep talking this way, I'm recording here at AEI, Yuvala Vin will materialize in the room if you keep talking like this. It will just happen. So, be, you know, I mean, that's good, but it is like Beetlejuice. If you say that enough times, he will occur. Um, look, the biggest problems facing America today are transpartisan problems. These are not problems of the left. They are not problems of the right. They are institutional problems. We have strip mined the, uh, the credibility of institutions for 50 years in the United States. And we, have, we are all populists now, right? We are all, yeah, those idiots. Um, thinking about one of the miracles of the Virginia election is that Glenn Youngkin is a normal, rich, dude. He is a credentialed, accomplished individual uh, who did not run as a uh, uh, wild hair, uh, crazy, we've got to tear down everything. He said, I'm a pretty nice, he, he's like, if a golden retriever were a politician, this would be uh, Glenn Youngkin uh, in obviously a fleece vest. But the, the problems that we confront is that no one wants to be the grown-up, right? No one wants to say, we, we have a lot of things that we do in the United States, by the way, that are legal but not constitutional. And the fact that there's so much that exists in that space speaks to the very problem that you identify. And there is a lot of what can we get away with? There are serious reforms that we need to consider in primary elections that we need to consider in all of these other things. But a great place to start, a very great place to start would be to let Congress be Congress again. And uh, God, I hope there is I hope there is some will for that to happen, because if we keep going like this, we will we will. I think the way banana republics turn into banana republics is that the institutions fail the people and then the people. It, it is a, a vicious cycle where the institutions fail the people, the people fail the institutions and it, and it spirals down. Well, if we look at the last three presidents, OK. Even four, you can even go back to Bush, right? So Bush, not a political person from a political family, gets elected governor of Texas six years later as president. Why? Doesn't have a doesn't have a Washington record he has to defend, you know, had a successful governorship in a a weak governorship at a in Texas and gets himself elected with no background. 2008, we get a president who uh, you know served one term, didn't, you know, 
said the right thing in one speech in 2002, at least when it came to his party about Iraq. Uh, didn't look like he was carrying the burdens of the past, like like his uh, rival in the Democratic Party, Hillary Clinton, gets elected. 2016, people go, even he, even he is too political a figure. We're going to go with somebody who has no political record whatsoever. And they go with Trump, a man who has never run for office again. He becomes president and he stinks up the joint. And then they go with a guy who's been in politics for 50 years. Literally now, next year will be his 50th year in politics. And he stinks up the joint. So we kind of have a leadership crisis in this one sense, which is to say we have designed our, our, our modern life, unlike the 19th century, the president is the summit figure right. of our political life. And you know what? Maybe this is a terrible blunder that we've undergone creating the imperial presidency in the wake of World War II or whatever. And we got to pull back because uh, nobody, nobody can get it right. And Congress should be the supreme. Con the, the Congress should be supreme, but they're first among equals. But Congress was supposed to be the governing body of the country, not not the executive branch. Congress is Article One. Congress is supposed to be the driver. Congress is supposed to do its job. The only failure, true failure of imagination of the founders was to fail to envision the fact that a day would come that one of the branches would intentionally devolve its own power for the sake of what turns out to be a sinecure, right? So that they can stay and have their little lapel pins and have people drive them around uh, and get clicks and go on cable news, as Jonah Goldberg calls it, the parliament of pundits. Uh, and it sucks. Uh, it's really, really, really bad. And it is the fault of the imperial presidency, yes, but it is also the fault of the lick spittle Congress that acts like we we are we are hacking a republic to turn it into a uh, parliamentary system. And when I heard, I forget which uh, Democratic senator the other day said this. Well, we're going to see what the president says, and then I'll vote that way. And I thought, <laughs> my God. Like, and Republicans were even worse with Trump. The 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 uh, the bowing and scraping was. And I look at, by the way, the failure to convict Trump after January sixth as the most effulgent example of congressional weakness. Because these Republicans would not even stand up for Congress for its own sake. Not even to say just to say. Whoever the president is, you may not send a mob of hooligans up to the Congress to try to pervert uh, our constitutional duty. And I do think we're reaching a tipping point on this stuff. And I, I'm, I don't want to be Pollyannish, but I do believe that the growing aware when I talk to members of Congress, when I spend time with these folks, the, the growing alarm and awareness of the dysfunction of this body is becoming uh, too evident to ignore. You know, I just want to finish by saying this. There used to be. When I moved to Washington in 1984, Congress had the single greatest perk in the world. People think that Congress is corrupt and everything. Actually, systematically, a lot of the perks that Congress members enjoyed have been like, have been stripped away from them over the years in, in terrible ways. And, Gingrich, and, took and, their ice, Gingrich took their ice buckets. Right. But here was the thing. This was the only reason I would ever want to be a member of Congress. At National Airport, before its expansion, if you were a member of Congress, you got to park in this special parking lot that was five feet away from the terminal when there was only this one little dinky terminal. Uh, 
And that was like enraging if you were, you know, me and you were like an ordinary person. You had to park in this parking lot, you know, like half a mile away and then walk on this uh, ugly path. But it was like, man, he would be great to be in Congress because <laughs> you could park right, right in right. front of the terminal and then just walk into the terminal. It was like amazing. I don't even know why they want to be in Congress. I don't even know what the what the what the pleasure is of being in Congress. Well, I think <clears throat> to, to be ahead. a part of this parliament of pundits now. I mean, that, that is the goal. It's not but most of them are not. You know, there are 435 members of the House. And I, I promise you that even the most literate among us knows maybe 10 knows at most 10 percent of their names. Congress is made up of people you never heard of, you never see. I'm, there are there are 15 senators Chris can name, but that you can't. I mean, I promise you, there was a time when I knew every senator, and I every now and then sort of there's some name pops up, and I'm like, who is that? Oh, that's a, a senator from Gishmagogo. You know, like, I, I, it's embarrassing, but they don't want to be. They're not. They don't want to be pundits. Uh, they, they, you know, they're not Matt Gates and they're not Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they're not you know, uh, they're not Adam Schiff. Um, so I don't know what they want. I don't know what the what the pleasure is. To stay. They want to stay. They want to be there. They want to feel important. They want the people to say, they, they want to have a staff of 12 people. Uh, they want people to schedule meetings for them. It's like, I mean, I work at a think tank. Uh, the, you know, uh, you can do important good work here. You can do that. But there are think tanks, not AEI. There are think tanks up and down this town where there are people, what are they doing there? They're having lunch. They're hiding. They're doing, they're doing that stuff. Um, when I started out as a newspaper reporter in Wheeling, West Virginia, I looked at the people who were on the city council and, and I thought, who are these idiots? Like, I can't believe these people. This is crazy. And then I moved to Charleston and covered state government in the capital. And I thought, these idiots are no better than those idiots. These guys are the same bunch of idiots with nicer suits down here than they were up there. And the only reason this guy's here is because his dad owns a filling station in Muddlety, West Virginia. And that's how come he is here as a state senator. But when I got to Washington, I thought, man, now I'm at the show. Now I am here. Uh, what do they say in um, uh, Bull Durham? That uh, they hit white ball, they hit fresh white balls at batting practice. This is really the thing. And you know what I found out? It's the same bunch of idiots that were on the Wheeling City Council. Uh, it's, the same, it's the same people because, and this is really part of it, we have denigrated public service to such an extraordinary de degree. We have stripped the privileges. We treat them all as bad. We treat them all as rapacious, power-hungry jerks. And therefore, the, you're, you're only going to get rapacious, power-hungry <laughs> You're only going to get those people if you treat it like that. So I have made a vow to myself in the past year which is I am going to try to be more charitable in my estimations of people who engage in public service. I am going to be a, less of a turd as it relates to these things. And I am going to acknowledge my complicity in strip mining the credibility from these institutions over the course of my career. I'm just saying, I want you to join me in my crusade to restore the congressional parking lot at National Airport with the hope that somehow it will be so much as it would be to me, like having heroin injected directly into Wouldn't my that veins, be amazing? That, that, that this would immediately straight stiffen their spines and make oh. them... Oh. I mean, no, you know, there's oh, a no, series. No, they, 
Christine, they'll do it. Ahead. I'm sorry. I'll just say they'll do it under Biden, but it'll be for electric cars only. And then it'll be just like this Pyrrhic victory for right. you. Only, only the cars that look like I could fit them in my, in my breast pocket. Those little tiny ones that you're like, how quickly will you die when you are, when you are rear-ended by a Ford F-250 on 66? By the way, there was a fantastic tweet yesterday. I, I can't remember who, who did it, who said that um, one of the things that was being restored or was in Build Back Better or something like that was a $12,500 tax credit for the purchase of an electric car. 12,500 American dollars. Yeah, I'm not quite sure for whom it may have been if you buy a fleet or something, if you buy more than five, you know, it's like that five will get you a $12,000 per credit. Um, And whoever it was looked up how many electric cars had been sold in West Virginia last year. And the number was 47. So the idea is you expect Joe Manchin to vote for this bill with a $12,500 subvention per car for an electric car when literally no one in his state has purchased an electric car? They're, they're marketing it wrong, John. They have to not call them electric cars in West Virginia. They have to call them coal-fired cars. These cars are powered by clean-burning West Virginia coal. That is running electricity plants. That's all I'm saying. There we go. The coal Boom. car. I'm, I, and I fully endorse the, uh, the pod plan for preferred parking. Okay. The real PPP. Since it is my plan, I believe that I should get a special, I should actually have a designated space as the designer of the plan. You're the commissioner. Okay. Chris, it's so great to have you. It's always great to have you. Uh, People, everybody should go to Amazon and buy Chris's uh, uh, book on populism, Every Man a King. Uh, And of course, next spring, uh, Noah's book on, 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 uh, on the rise of the new Puritans. Uh, We'll be talking about that more, but you know, no, you can't just you can't just throw out the name or throw out the words that are connected to the book. You're going to have to start citing the title of the book and telling people that it's on pre-order and all that. If it's on pre-order, maybe it's, it's not, not on pre-order. Yet. Okay, okay. But <laughs> I'm in the I'm teasing just, section I'm, of the I'm accepting this into, the, into you, your you imagination. Say these, this you is say these, you make these gnomic utterances, and no one knows what you're talking about. So I'm the one who has to tell. People, what you're talking this about. This is neuro-linguistic programming, John. I learned this oh, from perfect. Donald Trump okay. himself. I'm just, a, this is your idea, not mine. <laughs> okay, there you go. Anyway, Chris Starwald, thank you so much. We'll be back with you uh, tomorrow uh, for Abe, Christina, Noah, John Podhoritz here. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>